Amen. Listen, I'm going to do something I never, ever, ever, ever do, and that is shut up on the front end of the sermon and ask you guys to go ahead and grab those Bibles. So grab the Bibles and meet me at First Peter. That's where we're going to spend our time today. I don't know if you can pick up that I am eager to preach the Word of God, um, and, and there's several reasons why I'm eager. First, let me just say, I want to endorse our fourth Wednesday night prayer and Bible study that is happening this Wednesday night. Um, I really am... Uh, just desiring to see this place filled with people on their knees praying unto the Lord. Um, and there's something powerful about corporate prayer. You can definitely um, get through to the Lord because of Christ. You can get right through to the throne of grace uh, through individual prayer. But it's something powerful when we all come together and lift up our voices. And so here's what I can promise you. At 7 o'clock on the dot, we will be on our knees praying, and we'll do that for a half an hour. And then 7.30 on the dot, we will end that time of prayer and move right into a time uh, of, of, uh, of engaging the word. It's an intimate time of engaging the word. And then after that, I can promise you that we will be out of here by at least 8.59 uh, because I want you guys out. I want to respect your time. So 8.59, we'll be out of here so that you can uh, be walking out the door at 9 o'clock. Uh, one of the reasons I think that I am really eager to preach the word of God today is because we are finishing the first chapter of First Peter. That is something to celebrate. I can tell you now when you're going through a book of the Bible, now there's five chapters uh, in First Peter, so we still have four to go. But whenever you finish a book, it really is it's an accomplishment and it is something to celebrate. And so we have been uh, trying to be as faithful as possible to work through all of what First Peter has written to this scattered group of persecuted believers. Um, but what we have done is we've tried to take it slow. We did not want to just do a chapter in, in one week um, or even two weeks, but we've spent seven weeks. I don't know if you've picked that up, but we've spent seven weeks just in chapter one alone, uh, just because we believe that the word of God has a lot to say in there. We want to, it's almost like a rag, a wet rag. You know, you want, when you want to dry it out, you got to wring it as tight as possible. So we wanted to get every drip of nutrient that is in the word of God. And so we might pick it up a little bit quicker once we start moving to chapter two. Really chapter three, we'll pick it up a little bit um, and take some lar larger chunks of scripture. But for the last seven weeks, we've been doing two or three verses at a time. And it's been really, really good for us. And so um, just as a quick recap, and I will not go back through all of First Peter, but just as a quick recap, uh, we've identified in verse number one that Peter is the author of this book. Now, I know you might say, well, the book is named after Peter. Of course, he's the author. It's not the case in every single book. Timothy didn't write First and Second Timothy. Titus didn't write the book of Titus. But in this case, Peter is the author. And we've said that's a big deal because the book of Acts tells us that Peter is an uneducated man. He's an uncommon man. That, that becomes very important because when we're reading, it really validates the Holy Spirit's involvement that he could use uneducated men, that we're all sitting here 2,000 years later studying the work of a man that had no education. That was a fisherman. Only the work of Christ can do something like that. So we've identified him as the author, but we've also identified the audience in which he's writing to, which is equally as important. The audience he's writing to is also found in verse number one. He uses a weird grouping of, of words. He calls them elect exiles. We identify that being elect means that you are chosen by God. When we elect a president, we choose a president. When we, well, America, I don't know how we do it. 
but we're supposed to choose a president. Our electoral college chooses it these days. But anyway, that's, that's for another sermon. But we get, we, when we talk about election, we are talking about God choosing us. So if you've trusted in Jesus, you are the elect of God. But we also know that coupled with that word, he says exiles, which means even though you're chosen by God, you are not in your final resting place. You are not home with the Lord. You're still living here on earth. And Philippians picks it up this way. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven, which begs the question, why doesn't God save us and then swoop us right to heaven? We'll never sin. We'd be with him forever. Why does he not do it that way? The reason he doesn't do it that way is because there is a purpose for you being saved and still being on this earth. And the, the reason that he does that is because he wants us, us all in this room to be glory reflectors, to reflect the glory of Christ. And Paul picks it up and calls us exiles. That's what he calls us, elect exiles. And so we've called this series Living as Exiles, basically saying living differently than the world. You have a different value system. If you've trusted Jesus, there's a different set of affections that you have that makes you completely different. And so what Paul has done, I mean, Peter has done well in our letter is he's given us practical tools on how to live while still on earth. Today is no different. He's going to do the same thing today. Pick me up in verse number 22. Again, we're finishing the chapter today, so we'll be 22 to 25. It says this, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You should underline that phrase. Verse 24. Now he's about to quote in verse 24. He's going to quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse six through eight. He says, for all like all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of fading grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that is preached to you. I simply want to preach today from a topic entitled God's living and abiding word. God's living and abiding word. Let us pray. Father, what a privilege it is for us this morning to engage in your word. We thank you for, for leaving us a set of instructions. You could have not given us any instructions on how to do this life. But you've given us your word really as a compass and as a guidance. And so today we confess, Lord, that it would be it would be hard if we didn't have some type of direction. But you've given us direction through your word. And we pray that today we would engage it for the glory and honor of your son, Jesus Christ. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. It's that simple. Father, I pray that the gospel would be clear and that Jesus Christ would be made known to those who do not know him. And those who do know him, may they see him as the most glorious and the most beautiful thing in this life. It's in Christ's name that we come before you. Let everybody say amen. amen. There is uh, an author that I love by the name of Eugene Peterson. I don't know if you guys ever heard of this guy, Eugene Peterson. He tells of a story of how him and his wife, Jan, went to a monastery in New Mexico. And one of the monks that was uh, assigned to them was leading them from prayer at, at the temple from prayer to go to lunch. And on this path that he's leading them, they passed the cemetery. And as they were passing the cemetery, they noticed a open grave, a freshly dug open grave. And Eugene Peterson's wife, Jan, asked the question, it's a true story, she asked the question, why is that grave open? Did somebody just die? Did one of the monks or brothers just die? To which the monk that was leading them responded, no, that is for the next one. 
No one died. We just keep it dug and open because it's for the next monk that does die. So what happens is three times a day as these monks are leaving from the temple to go to the place that they're going to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they would pass an open grave. Now, as morbid as that may sound, that is what Peter's doing in our letter. Peter is reminding us in this room that you are the next one. I know you come every week and I tell you, listen, you're, you're going to die, but it's, it's true. I don't care how much spinach you eat. I don't care if you walk 10 miles a day. Every single one of us in this room have an expiration date. So what Peter is doing is Peter is showing us until that expiration date comes, we need to live for Christ. This is how Paul would have viewed death in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says, to live is Christ. And then he goes on to say, but to die is gain. What gain is there in death? The gain is that you will be with Jesus Christ forever. But until he comes back, you're an exile living on this earth. How should we live? Here's how we should live. You should live differently. Exile really should be spelled D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T. Different. You are different. And so if there's no difference between you and your non-believing co-worker, something's not right. On campus, if there's no difference between you and your peers, something's not right. There's no difference between you and your non-believing neighbor. Something is not right. And so Peter, this week, what he's doing is really honing us in on what it looks like to live as exiles. And I can, can I promise you, living as an exile will not hurt you in this life. Because what we do is we'll say, man, living differently makes me stand out. Now, I'm not saying you're better. I'm saying you're different. And that is a big, big difference. This is, this is how Daniel lived. Read the Old Testament. Read the book of Daniel. Daniel was living in exile in, in Babylon. And when I promise you, he stayed to the course of looking different than everybody else. And when his enemies came and tried to find something against Daniel, they could not find anything on him. First of all, that in and of itself is a miracle. Like, can you imagine if people tried to find something on us in here? They would find something. They couldn't find something on Daniel. So what did they do? They went after the one thing that makes him different. He prays three times a day. And he opens his window. And he kneels down towards Jerusalem. And so we can see him praying every day. And can I promise you, Daniel being different didn't hurt him on the job. Daniel was still getting promotions after promotions after promotions. And so what I'm not saying is that you being different means you spend two hours of company time doing an exegetical Bible study. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying kill it at work so that when people come up to you and say, what is it about you? You can point them to Jesus. Some of you can't be a good witness at work because you're too busy showing up late every day. Let's be real. Some of you can't be a good witness at work because you're on your final written warning. How can you share the gospel when you're on your way out? Some of you can't be a good witness and live as an exile at work because you're supposed to be taking an hour break, but you take an hour and a half. And so what Peter is showing us is to, no, 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 live by the rules of this world, but kill it so that people can see the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ, all, like exuberating off of you. Now, what Peter does in our text, though, is Peter doesn't say, I want to point to an individual that is different. Peter, in our text this morning, says, I want to point to a corporate body that is different. 
So if people look at you and say, man, she's different, that's great. But what Peter is getting at today is that they, the world should look at Epiphany Church and say, that group of people is different. I don't know what it is about them. They're not stabbing each other in the back. I don't know what it is about them. They're not cussing each other out. How in the world are they in this thing called DNA and being vulnerable and their business does not go around the church? But they actually pray for each other. How is it that they open their homes for other people to come in and do life? Like that just seems weird to me. They should see a difference in us. How is it that Epiphany Church does not gossip on each other? Can I tell you the one way to kill a church is to gossip? And I promise you the one way to get on my nerves is to bring me somebody else's business. Like I pray once a week, I pray that this would be a gossip free zone. And if, you, if you're gossiping is your thing, I pray that you would feel uncomfortable and I'll help you escort, your, escort you right on the way out because gossiping will kill a unified church. We should be different. Peter calls it love. Peter calls it being an exile. And what does it mean to be an exile? That means we are absolutely different. And so here's my problem. My problem with the church is that we don't look much different than the world. We'll raise one hand and praise Jesus with the other hand, stabbing our sister in the back. We will open up our mouth to worship Jesus, but then we won't speak to our brother and our sister all week long. Don't be an exile. Don't be an elect exile on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, you're just anything. No, Peter calls us this morning. He says, no, I don't care if you look the part on Sundays, but you should live as an exile 24-7. In some parts of the country, I don't know if you know this, I'm going to get to the text, but in some parts of the country, the divorce rate is higher amongst professing believers than it is amongst non-believers. How does that happen? The Bible just says we have the imperishable word of God in us. How in the world are we looking like the world? Let's get to our text this morning because I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep on this rant. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. I don't know if you picked up what Peter just did. Peter just connected our need to love one another with the word of God. What Peter is showing us here is he's saying, listen, verse 19 showed us you are washed and purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what that does for your relationship vertically with God is it demolishes the beef between you and God. But the cross also should demolish the beef between you and I. That's what Peter is showing. And so Peter is saying, listen, if the cross worked vertically, it should work horizontally as well. And so Peter says, listen, our need to love one another cannot be separate from the word of God. The word of God should inform how we love one another. We should not look to the world to define for us what love is. We have 66 books that define for us what love is. Peter says, let the word of God inform your day-to-day loving people. And so what Peter does is he gives us three reasons why we should love one another. Three in our text, three reasons, really two, and one of them is a support for the two, but there's three reasons why Peter shows us we should love one another. Let me lift up the first one. It's found in verse 22. It says, having 
Please circle this word, purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And so Peter shows us the first thing that the word of God does is it purifies or it cleanses us. That's what the word of God does. Yes, we're ultimately clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, but there's another sense in which the word of God purifies us to which we're purified, and that is through the word of God. Now, what Peter is talking about here when he's talking about purification of your souls, he's pointing back to the ceremonial washing of that time. When I went to Jerusalem, right before you enter into the temple, there's these huge pools. Now, they're dried up now, but what those pools were for is they would have a ceremonial washing before they went into the temple. Now, we don't do that today because we believe that Jesus Christ has cleansed us from our sins. And so we don't have to wash outside on Fulton Street and then come up into worship. We can enter into the throne of grace and worship God because of Jesus Christ. And we identify it through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is baptism. But what Peter is showing us here is, yes, you are cleansed and purified through the blood of cross, but there is a daily cleansing that the word of God does. Can I prove it to you? In Ephesians chapter five, verse 26, Paul says this to husbands. He says, sanctify your wife, having cleansed her by the washing of water. Listen, with the word. So the word acts as a cleaning agent. John 17, 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus says this, sanctify them or wash them through your truth. Here it is, for your word is your truth. The word of God acts as a daily cleansing agent. But here's what I know. Naturally, I can't just bathe one time and be good all week. Let me tell you what I did this morning. This morning, I got up at 6 o'clock, went in the bathroom, brushed my teeth, washed my face, ran downstairs to my office, got on my knees and prayed for a bit, got up and did a devotional looked over my sermon, wrote in my journal, went back upstairs, gave Ty a hug, gave her a little pat, you know, just how we do. <laughs> gave her a little pat, let her go on. I jumped in the shower. Now, here's what I know. The shower I took last night ain't good for tomorrow. Amen, somebody. <laughs> I got to get in the shower again tomorrow. The, I don't care how well I brush my teeth this morning. By tonight, I'm going to have to brush them again. And I actually, you know, you can't just brush the teeth. You got to get that tongue. <laughs> Amen. Jackie Hill Perry says that the, the death is on the back of the tongue. You got to, you know, you really got to brush the tongue. And, and so what, what, I, what you'll notice is, although I took a shower this morning, although I brushed my teeth this morning, that will not suffice for tomorrow. But what we do is we say, I heard the word on Sunday and don't read it all week. Bad spiritual hygiene is what we got. And so, you know, what, what, amen, the babies are saying amen. They ain't even got teeth and they like amen. But what happens is, what happens with bad spiritual hygiene is it creates distance between you and somebody else. Can we be honest? I know y'all are deep this morning, but can we be honest? It's hard to have a relationship with somebody that has really bad hygiene to the point where they smell. Can we be honest? Okay. So what we, what, what we typically do is, in the midst of not spiritually cleansing ourselves through the word, we are creating distance between us and someone else. I was in the city with Ty a couple of weeks ago, and we were taking the train to come back, the A train to come back. And what we noticed 
that was that it was rush hour, so every single cart on the train was jam-packed to the point where people were, like, busting out of the door. You know, back in the day, you could stick your arm in the, in the train door, and they'll just open back up. Now that joint would chop your arm. <laughs> it would chop your arm straight off and keep going. But we noticed that this train, I mean, the whole thing was packed except one cart. One cart wasn't packed. I, it was about three people on this cart. Y'all already know what happened. It was about three people on this cart. And so we, you know, we was boo-loving, so we wasn't paying attention. We like, man, let's go get a seat on that cart. We got on the cart, you know, and the doors closed. And we, we realized why nobody was on that train. There was a guy at the end of the cart that I probably didn't shower in two or three months. And the whole cart had this smell. So nobody wanted to sit on that train. In fact, the next stop, we got off and we crammed ourselves into the next cart. What happened there? Distance was created between that person and everybody else on the train because of bad hygiene. And the same is true spiritually. Nobody wants to be around the person that has bad spiritual lying breath and gossiping breath. Nobody wants to be around that person. So here's what we do. This is Listerine. I promise you this is not from Mr. Liquor across the street. This is Listerine. And so what we do with, with, what we need is the spiritual mouthwash of the word. That's what we need. And so what we do with, with the spiritual mouthwash of the word, a.k.a. Listerine, a.k.a. the word of God, is we just want to study it. We want to read about it. We want to memorize the, what the front says. Oh, it's an antiseptic mouthwash. You know, it's original. You know, we want to look at the back. How long do I do it? I gargle it for 30 seconds. By the way, you gargle this gold for 30 seconds? See, this is different than the, the fresh burst. This is different than the cool mint. This will literally take a layer of skin off your mouth if you gargle this too long. So what we do is we want to debate about the spiritual mouthwash of the word. We want to write blogs about it. We want to learn the history of it. By the way, I don't know if you know that Listerine was not created as a mouthwash. It was originally created as a surgical antiseptic. Later was repurposed to a foot scrub. And then in the 1920s, it got its most lucrative, uh, most lucrative use as a plaque-destroying mouthwash. But what we want to do is we want to learn the history. Oh, this is what the history is. We want to debate it. We want to get online and say, no, this verse says this. No, this verse, you know, it's called text tennis. You know, you throw a verse and I hit you back a verse and we just keep going back and forth. We want to do everything else with the spiritual mouthwash of the word. The only thing we don't want to do is open it, pour it in and cleanse ourselves and gargle it. By the way, why would we gargle? We got to do this little thing. You know, you don't got to do that, right? You just, Ugh. anyway, we want to do everything else with the spiritual mouthwash of the word, except open it and cleanse ourselves. We'll memorize it. I know it. Listen, we'll learn the Greek and the Hebrew. But well, here's what I know. There are people with a PhD in the spiritual mouthwash of the word that still have holitosis. And so what we don't need is we do not need to just memorize the, the mouthwash of the word. We need to cleanse ourselves with the mouthwash of the word. And the reason we really don't want to cleanse ourselves is because it's painful. Just like if I gargle this one second too long, it's painful. We don't want to cleanse ourselves with the word of God because it actually is going to get at you. You ever read that one verse and you like, man, I didn't even know this verse was in the Bible. And it was just, it just destroyed your whole week. That's what cleansing yourself with the word of God looks like. This book is a cleansing 
agent. Now, let me give you some practical tools on how we cleanse ourselves in the word of God. There's really three ways you can cleanse yourself. The first way is memorize the word. It's a good thing to take scripture and memorize it so that you can, I call it fighting verses, so that later on you can pull it out and use it. Memorize the word. The second, the second way in which we can be cleansed by the word of God, the second way is by meditating on the word. Psalms 119 verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You should be thinking about the word. You should, a decision should come up and you should say, well, what does the word of God have to say about that? Let me go find out what the word says before I make that decision. Meditate on the word. It's a good way to cleanse yourself. The third way is, is one that I'm learning to, to love and to do on a consistent basis, and that is pray the word. You ever read a scripture and then pray about that very scripture in your own life? I was doing that this week with Psalms 40. Psalms 40, I was just walking through it, and, and the word of God was getting at me, and you know, I was, I was praying for patience. Verse number one says in Psalms 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. So I spent time praying for what patience looks like in my life because I realized I'm an impatient person. I continued through Psalm 40. I was praying for more trust. Verse number four, blessed is the man who makes his trust in the Lord and does not turn to the proud. I was praying for obedience. Verse number eight, I delight to know your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. I was praying about God's faithfulness and how faithful the Lord has been. You can read verse 10. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from this great congregation. I was praying about my finances. The verse has something about that. Verse 17 in Psalm 40. As for me, I am poor and I am needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Pray the word of God is a great way to cleanse yourself. And so the reason we can love each other is because I'm coming to the relationship after taking a spiritual bath this morning. Changes your attitude. Getting into the word of God. So the first way that the word of God cleanses you in order to help you to love people is that it cleanses you and purifies you. The second thing that Peter is going to bring us is that the word of God helps us to love because it has an imperishable nature. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. Actually, let me go back to verse 22 and to 23 because it's, it's no period between the two, so it's really one sentence. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere, sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, here it is, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed. What Peter is showing us here is that we all in this room are born of a perishable seed. If you are born from a man and a woman, you are, you have, you are perishing. Now, anybody ever like in the middle of the day just feel an ache in your back? You're a perishing seed is what you are. Somebody said, mm, I feel it now, Lord. I hear you, Miss Sherry. Listen, we are perishing, every single one of us in this room. But the word of God is an imperishable seed. You know, the, the guys yesterday were like, man, listen, we, had, we got together yesterday, and they were like, hey, we're going to play basketball. And I remembered that I was a perishable seed and haven't worked out for a while. 
So I was like, I'm going to let y'all go ahead. And I'm going to skip this one to like, you know, work out a little bit. Because I, I, my wife would have had to run the Epsom salt, you know, bath because I would have been hurting for days. I played football with some of the guys here and I was out for the count for at least two weeks. What I'm saying is a perishable seed. And here's the thing about the, your, your body perishing is that you really don't even have to do something with a lot of activity to be hurting these days. I love the way our, our, um, our president of our network, Acts 29, Matt Chandler, says it. He says that you know that you are perishing by the fact that you hurt yourself sleeping. <laughs> like, consider, you ever woke up and you looking around like this, you can't turn your neck. The reason you're looking like that is because you're a perishing seed. But here's, here, here's, where, here's where loving others comes into play. Even though our bodies are decaying, and that's what the scripture tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so even though the outside of you is aching and it's hurting, the inside of you is not. Why? Because you're born of a perishable seed, but Peter also shows us that when we're born again, the seed that you were born of the second time is an imperishable seed. So here's what he's saying. Although all of us in this room are getting worse physically with old age, I don't care how much Pilates you do, we're getting, do people still do Pilates? Yes, yeah, okay, good, because I don't know where I was going to go after that. Pilates is all I know. Here's what I know. It doesn't matter what you do. Every one of us are getting older and our bodies are decaying away. But because we are born of an imperishable seed, our spirits don't get older, we get better. And so the more you walk with the Lord and the tighter you cling to cleaning yourself in this word, the better you should love others, the better you should treat others. Why? Because our inner self is not being, it's not perishing. How in the world can two people who are born and pregnant with the imperishable word of God, the imperishable seed, stop speaking to each other over irreconcilable differences? It's impossible. Why? Because we should be getting better and better. But the, Peter doesn't just say it's the word of God. Look at the text. In verse 23, he says, through the living and abiding word of God, the word of God is living. The word of God is alive. That's Hebrews 4. It's alive and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And so, so far, what Peter has showed us is that the word of God purifies us or it cleanses us. Second thing he showed us was that the word of God is an imperishable seed. The third thing he's going to show us is that the word of God is enduring. Now, this is more of an encouragement to submit to the first two. The word of God is enduring. It does not, it will not be irrelevant. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. Again, he quotes Isaiah 40 here. He says, all flesh like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. Verse 25 but the word of the Lord remains forever. Perishing man has to submit himself to an enduring word, word that does not get out of date. This word has stood the test of time. A hundred years from now, if the Lord doesn't come back, no one will be talking about you, but people will still be clinging to this word because it's enduring. Did you see what the word says? You and I are the grass here. We are fading, but the word of God does not fade. The word of God is enduring. I'm told of a story of a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire. And Voltaire, it's an interesting thing. He was a, a stark atheist. And he made a very bold and 
arrogant statement. He said that 100 years from now, this is in the 1700s, so we know he wasn't true. He said 100 years from now, the Bible will be irrelevant. Here's the interesting thing about him. 1778, he died. And his house went up for auction. The French government bought his house, put it up for auction. Guess who bought his house? Not the church, but the French Bible Society bought his house and began to print off thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies of the word of God. What you see is that Voltaire said, 100 years from now, that thing that you guys call the Bible is going to be irrelevant. Yet the very place he slept every night, the French Bible Society said, yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. And begin to print the word of God over and over and over again. Voltaire is forgotten. Some of you in this room don't even know who that is, but you know what the word of God is because the word of God endures. It does. It just it just does. And if you're in this room and you're a skeptic, like, thank you for coming. If you're a skeptic, you're like, I don't believe in that Bible stuff. Someone just invited me. So I, I came. I don't really believe it. it's probably has contradictions. By the way, whenever someone says it has contradictions, they never can really point out a contradiction. I've read Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and there is no contradictions. And there are some things in there that are tough to understand. But doesn't, doesn't Peter say that about Paul? Peter, says, Peter talks about Paul. He says there's some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand. When the Bible says it's hard to understand, it's hard to understand. But there is no contradictions in the word of God. And those of you who are in here that are saying, listen, I can't trust the Bible because I, I just don't believe in those stories of the Bible. I don't believe it's like it's really inspired by the Holy Spirit. Consider this, that the Bible is written by 40 different authors over a 1500 year span. It's written on three different continents and three different languages, all about the same person. Who else can orchestrate that type of a book to come together but the Holy Spirit? If I went to 50 different governors that make up the 50 states of America, if I went to these governors and said, listen, let's make a statue. And I'm not going to tell you what part of the statue to send in. I need some people to send in a toe, some people to send in a leg, some people to send in a finger, send in a nose. Just send whatever you can. And everybody starts to send in their parts of this statue. And when we get all the parts and put them together, it is a perfectly made statue. You would say, no way. It's impossible. Some emails were exchanged. It's you got it. You had to have governed it a little bit. No, nobody governed it. We just said put it together. You would say that is impossible. But I would say that it is more unlikely for 40 different authors to come together over a 1500 year span. By the way, most of them never talk to each other. Maybe three or four in the New Testament. You cannot tell me that Ezekiel talked to Peter. You can't prove to me that Moses talked to John. But all of these men over a 1500 year span come together to write about one person, to make an image for us of one person named Jesus Christ. You have to have said the Holy Spirit is inspiring that. So if you're in here and you're going, man, I don't believe the Bible. You know, I don't believe that book. It's not just one book. It's 66 books. And all of them come together to make the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Christ, yes, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter says, listen, the word of God, your grass, you're going to fade. You are, you are on your way out. You came this morning for me to tell you that. You are the next one. 
That grave that was empty is for you. But this word will always endure. So we can submit ourselves to what the word says to help us to cleanse ourselves, to love others because the word of God is enduring. This is what 2 Peter chapter 1 says, verse 20 to 21. It's what Peter says in the second letter he writes. He says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Hear me. I trust the word of God because it is God breathed. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16, all scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for, re- for rebuke and for correction and for instructions and training in righteousness. I don't trust this word because Peter was so eloquent. I told you, Peter's an uncommon, uneducated man. I trust the words of Peter because he was carried along by the spirit. The word that we are reading this morning was inspired by God himself. So I can submit myself to this word. Now, let's go back to verse 22 because I intentionally went over it because I really wanted to secure us in our confidence in the word before we read 22. Verse 22 is really like the linchpin of these couple of verses. The reason it is, is because Peter focuses and emphasizes, it makes an emphasis on one thought. Verse 22, it says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. When I was in school, I went to Karen University uh, right in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And when I went to school, they taught us this phrase called the chiastic structure. It's a literary phrase called the chiastic structure. And the chiastic structure, this, this is as deep as the sermon is going to get. I got nothing else deeper than this. The, the, the chiastic structure basically says, if you want to find out in a text, if you want to find out what the dominating thought is, you have to look at the structure of the text. And so in our text today, there's two thoughts presented. He's talking about purity twice, and he's talking about love twice. And so what he's saying is, what what the chiastic structure says is, the structure of the text will help you to understand what the theme is that he's getting at. So let me give you, let me give you an example. If there's thought A in a text and there's thought B in a text, the chiastic structure will say that If it's presented to you by thought A, then thought B, then thought B, then thought A, the dominating theme is always the middle. It's always thought B. So let me give you an example of that. Common saying that we always say is, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. That's a chiastic structure. What's presented to us there? Going and tough. Let me, just stay with me. When the going, going once, right, gets tough, the tough get going. The highlight is not ongoing. The highlight is on tough. Why? Because tough is sandwiched in between going. Now, let's get back to verse 22, because what Peter does is he presents to us a chiastic structure. Verse 22. I'm going to read the top and I'm going to read the bottom. Having purified your souls, purity. And then at the end of the verse, he says, earnestly from a pure heart. Sandwiched in between purity is two words that are used twice. Look at what it says. Verse 22. Having purified your souls, Uh, Let me skip Uh, for a sincere brotherly love. And then right after that, he says, love one another. And so if we're going with the chiastic structure, what we've just noticed with what Peter presented to us was that purity is talked about. Love is talked about. Love is talked about. Purity is talked about. What is the dominating theme in that verse? 
Love. I paid a lot of money for that degree, so I, I hope y'all follow. <laughs> I, in fact, I'm still paying for it. I'm just, you know, Sally Mae, she, she don't know Jesus. And <laughs> if y'all see Sally Mae, y'all share the gospel with her. She's, she calls you, share the gospel with her. Don't even just share it and hang up on her. And don't tell her my address. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's, 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 I have issues if I don't do, if I don't pay my stuff back. Listen, the dominating thing that Peter is presenting to us in this text is love. What he's saying is that the word of God has the ability to purify you, but that purity isn't for you to say, look how pure I am. That purity motivates you to love somebody else. One of the worst things to do is go into a church full of people that hate and that hate each other and hate that you came into their church. Like, I'm serious. You ever had that mean usher? You know what I'm saying? They'd be like, sit over there. You know, that one of y'all like, we got that one. I'm just kidding. We don't have that one. We don't have that one. But listen, love is the dominating theme of what Peter is talking about. Tasha's raising her hand and messing me up. <laughs> Peter is showing us that love is the dominating theme in our verse. But he doesn't just use the word love. The word he uses in the original language is Philadelphia, which is brotherly love. So in other words, this is the love that is shown between siblings. Now, here's what I know about family. Family fights. So I'm not saying y'all got to love to the point where we act like nothing's wrong. No, family actually does fight. But I also know I don't care how bad family fights if something from the outside tries to come in and talk about family. We don't let that happen. I could be in the middle of an argument with a family member in my house. And I promise you, if something hits the window from the outside, the argument goes out the window. In that moment, I'm protecting. And so what Peter is showing us here, he's not saying don't just love, but show love that siblings or family have. You and I in this room, we may look differently. We may think differently. We may talk differently. But at the end of the day, you and I that have trusted Jesus are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should act and love like we our brothers and sisters in Christ. But here's what I know about the word love. The word love has been overused in our context. We say, I love New York. We say, I, I, I love Chick-fil-A. Like, if you love me like you love a number seven with cheese, <laughs> like, love me better than that. Love me in a unique fashion. Can I point to the cross? This is how Jesus loved us. If we want to know what the definition of love is, we look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because love, Jesus, that love that Jesus showed us was sacrificial love. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But with the great love, it doesn't even just say he loves you. With the great love. This is, this is the kind of love that we have to have for one another. Yes, you may get on my nerves. Yes, I may have to talk to you about some stuff that you said that I didn't like. But at the end of the day, we walk out and we love each other. And the world needs to see that. Fortunately, they don't see it in the church. They need to see it. Now, let's keep going because now Peter's going to end our time in verse 25 by going back to the word. But now he's going to introduce to us the importance of preaching the word. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that I preach to you. This is the second time that Peter talks or mentions or talks about the preaching of the word. And I know I say it every week, but it's very important that you do not underestimate this moment that we're in now. It, I, as great as worship was, and I love worshiping together with God's body, there is no greater important moment within a service than the preaching of the word of God. Yeah. 
This, that is why this is the climax of our time together, is getting ourselves in the word. If we come in here and just sing songs and walk out, you have been done a disservice. If I come in here and just say, hey, let's, you know, let's pray or let's, you know, sing something. I have to get into the word of God. Why? Because Peter shows us twice. And in chapter four, he's going to do it again. And he doesn't just say preach, but he says preach the good news. So we don't just preach whatever, preach the good news. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named H.B. Charles, and he says it best. He says the best part of the sermon is the text. Not the delivery, not the charisma. The best part of the sermon is the text itself. The Bible tells us to preach the good news. I do not have the right to come in here and preach anything else but the good news. Please don't underestimate this moment. We come in, we sacrifice, we get up, we, we get the kids ready, and we make our way to church so that we can be amongst believers, so that we can worship together, but so that we can sit under the preached word of the good news. What is the good news? Good news is that you were dead in your sins. You and I have no hope apart from Jesus Christ, but Jesus comes down and dies on your behalf. The Bible says that the iniquities of us all were laid on Jesus, and he was crushed for your sin. He was crushed for my sin. And then that's not it. That would be great if that was just the end of the gospel. The gospel goes on to say that Jesus then gives you his righteousness. This is the good news that you and I have been reconciled back to the father as though nothing ever happened, as though you never sinned before. That is the good news of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Here's what I know. Some of you in this room have been faithful to reading your word. You've been faithful to serving. You've been faithful to getting in a small group and you've been faithful to getting into what we call DNA, which is accountability. You've been faithful in coming here every week. But deep inside, you still have hate in your heart with one of your brothers or your sisters. There's no love in your heart for somebody else. And Peter challenges us this morning. Peter shows us in the word today that we should live as exiles. And one of the ways we live as exiles is by others seeing that we love each other. Some of you have to forgive somebody. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know who that is on your radar. Some of you need to forgive a family member some of you need to forgive somebody else that has done you wrong, another brother or a sister in Christ. What you need is what Peter presents to us in this text. You need to cleanse yourself with the word of God so that you have the ability to love somebody else. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to do an altar call today because I think corporately all of us are on the altar. So if you don't mind, if you could stand with me and if you could grab hands with somebody that is next to you. Worship team, I'm going to invite you guys up now. If you guys could stand and hold hands with somebody next to you. Here's my prayer. The person that you're holding hands with is somebody that you actually are not loving. Pray that you would feel the, even the conviction of holding their hand. Peter challenges us, us this morning. Every head bow. Father, today we are confessing that corporately we have to love better. Forgive us for getting in cliques. Forgive us for gossiping. 
Forgive us for stabbing each other in the back. Forgive us for being crabs in a barrel. Father, help us to push each other. Help us to do what the scripture says. Outdo one another with honor. It's the hardest thing to do. Why? Because deep inside, we're all selfish. Every one of us in this room deals with selfishness. Move us past ourselves. Corporately help us to love somebody else so that when the world looks in, they can see that you are all over us. Your good hand is on us. Break our hearts in moments when we talk about our brothers and our sisters. Break our hearts for being the church that's known for church hurt. Forgive us, Lord. Why? Because Jesus Christ has modeled for us what it looks like to love somebody that did you wrong. He loved people that pulled the beard out of his face. Loved people that pierced him in his side. He loved a thief on the cross. You loved, forget them, you loved us. Like that in and of itself is a miracle because we weren't thinking about you. Yet you loved us. Because you loved us, you've now given us the example of what it looks like to love you. Father, I pray for each and every one of us in this room as individuals, but I pray corporately we'd outdo one another. And I pray that corporately, when the world does look at Epiphany, they would say, that church loves Jesus, but they love each other. It's crazy to see, but they love each other. Father, would you do that in this room? It's for your glory and for your honor, we pray. Amen. You may be seated.